faithwire.com. Youngkin takes Virginia, New Jersey, currently too close to call. It was an election night with huge consequences. Today is Wednesday, November 3rd, 2021. I'm Dan Andros. We'll have this story and more on today's 4 and 3 podcast from CBN's Faithwire. Just want to welcome in everyone from CBN's Daily Rundown. We're here every Wednesday uh, here on the Daily Rundown. Glad to uh, be with you and have you with us. So four big stories, three things you need to know about them. From a Christian perspective, that's what we do here. You can find us on iTunes. We're here Monday through Friday. We'd love to have you join us. And joining me today is Trey Goins Phillips and Billy Hallowell with a look at what's coming up. What's going on, guys? Hey, Dan. So uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, Winsome Sears. Uh, she, you know, obviously all eyes were at the top of the ticket. Yeah. They were on Glenn Youngkin and uh, Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat. Uh, but she made history uh, last night. Uh, and she also talked about her faith and how important that was in her journey to victory. So uh, mm. we'll, we'll go over some of that and share some clips from her speech last night. Cool. Yeah, and I've got a story about a guy named Brian Cole, and it's kind of a wild story. He spent three decades in the occult. He was a Satanist, and I had actually never spoken to somebody who had actually worshipped Satan before, so it was kind of interesting to hear that theological perspective and then coming out of that life and not only into the Christian realm, but becoming a pastor. So we're going to be talking about his story today as well. All right, looking forward to that. And um, also at the end there, we're going to I want to go through some of the reaction to last night's election. We're going to go over the results and things here in just a moment. But uh, there was some interesting reaction, particularly from the left, and how they uh, kind of spun the the events of the evening and how it unfolded. So we'll, we'll get all y'all's reaction to that. But we're going to start uh, story number one here, uh, the big election night and sweeping wins for Republicans. And Glenn Youngkin in Virginia uh it, it wasn't really in doubt from early on. It seemed like people had a handle on how it was going to unfold as you had people like Ted Cruz and um, and Mike Pence and others congratulating Youngkin early on in the night uh, once the county started to come in, the results started to come in, and it just was very evident that uh, McAuliffe was not going to have the counties, was not going to have the demographics to go ahead and make up the difference. McAuliffe did try at, some, at one point in the evening to talk about how Fairfax's early votes were going to have to be recounted uh, and rescanned. Uh, so he kind of put that out there. He went and spoke early before the race had been called and alluded to that, thanked everyone. And it, it seemed like that ended up being he just wanted to get out there and, and show his face before the result was known so that he didn't have to go out uh, in that losing moment. But uh, that is eventually what happened a little bit past midnight. The race was... Uh, called by AP and most of the major outlets, uh, media outlets, uh, by about 1230 uh, there early in the morning. So New Jersey, meanwhile, uh, Jack Cittarelli going up against incumbent Phil Murphy. That one, incredibly, within only a couple hundred votes. And that hmm. is just, uh, just a really a shocker, probably more shocking than even the results there in Virginia because New Jersey is a solidly blue state, of course, guys. I mean, we we know that that one goes typically Democrat handily. Um, you know, obviously you have somebody like, a, a, you know, Chris Christie getting in there, but, you know, he's kind of more of a, you know, center Republican, not 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 necessarily like a hardcore Republican. So um, typically New Jersey, very blue. And so to see that one very close, 
uh, has to be sending red flags up all around Democratic politics uh, across the country. And some other things of note here, guys. This is number two here. Uh, Minneapolis, that, that was one we had been watching, and that measure lost pretty big. I, the final number, I don't have in front of me, but last I checked, it was about 57, 41, something in that nature. It was it was pretty significant loss there, pretty de- big defeat um, for that measure to kind of get rid of the police department, not really get rid of it per se, but restructure so that there was a public safety department over all of it, another big government sort of infrastructure there. So... So some big things happening uh, across the country last night, and it was a reckoning of sorts for the Joe Biden administration, because this was the first temperature check in the country since Joe Biden took office. And, you know, it's just been a disastrous run for the president, guys. Um, and why, why, why does it matter? Because we said ahead of this, this, is, this may be what's to come in 2022 and maybe 2024, and as I mentioned there with Biden, guys, just just a disastrous run for him right now. Yeah, I mean, in addition to the the top of the ticket, the the governorship, uh, also down ballot, Republicans made a lot yeah. of victories in Virginia. And I think the, the takeaway here for me is one, villainizing parents is not a, a winning <laughs> yeah. strategy. Yeah. Like it just does, it doesn't go well. But also, uh, the suburban voters came back to the GOP quite quite strongly mm. uh, last night across the ticket, and I, it, it kind of shows to me that maybe. The, the Trump stranglehold that, that the Democrats were so ready to tie Yunkin to Trump. I don't know that it holds the same power that it once did. No. It seems like that just is not a strategy that worked. And to Yunkin's credit, McAuliffe kept trying to get him to take the bait, right, to nationalize the election. And he pretty much ignored that and just stayed focused on the issues. He just drove home the education thing yeah. big because he knew that that was his his meal ticket and it was a train that was going. So it was either get on or, or miss it. Well, uh, and Yunkin got on and that's what he focused on. Yeah. And I'll just add I'll just add to that, Billy, and then we'll get your reaction. But uh, I just want to say. These are tangible issues, you know, like right. McAuliffe was there trying to tie to Trump, which we talked about yesterday. They've also deleted him from the Internet, you know, on Twitter and everything else. So you, he's not front face for everybody. He's kind of been relegated to the for him. Which McAuliffe was upset about, by right. the way, that, he, that he's not on right. Twitter anymore. And so mean that's what he's trying to focus on, something that people are not seeing. They're not feeling that every day. And meanwhile, their own kids are getting indoctrinated with crazy radical stuff at schools, sexualized content. You know, there's bathroom assaults, transgender policies, things that are real to parents. And um, also things like the grocery stores being half empty all over the place and gas prices being. These are real things that people are dealing with. And McAuliffe chose to ignore those and focus on Trump. Yeah, and he focused on the abstract, right? Like right. you said, Yunkin was focusing on something that's that's hitting people's wallets. Yeah. And that's always going to resonate more than the abstract political prognosticating sure. is. Well, you know, there's something else going on here, and I think there's a psychology of the last year and a half. You've had politicians telling people, you can't do this, you can't do that. There have been so many rules and regulations, and I think the breaking point of that, the seal was broken when you have politicians now saying, guess what, parents shouldn't have a say in what's being taught in schools. Mm. And meanwhile, parents all over this country, including my own family, we moved to a specific area 
because of the public schools. People actually make decisions based on schools of where they're going to live. So when you start to tell them you don't, you should not have a voice in this, especially after you've told them this past year, hey, by the way, you're going to educate your kids while you work at home. Um, you have kind of this perfect storm going on, and I think that's why that's one of the reasons why this education issue is becoming so big. This is not new. We have seen for decades, and I would point this out because I think it hasn't actually gotten a lot of attention. Go back and look at the Gallup data. The public has had a distrust or not a lot of confidence in the public school system since really the 1980s. The last time it crossed 50% in terms of the public having a favorable view uh, Mm -hmm. was like 1988 or something. And so for a long time, this distrust has been brewing. And we're seeing polling nationally showing 73% of registered voters saying that they're concerned about what's being taught in schools. So it's all it's all coming to a head. But I wanted to make one other note about Trump. One of the things that fascinates me is that a lot of people on the left think that by erasing him from social media, they're somehow, you know, protecting the republic. Meanwhile, they actually may be very well priming him for another run because people have short memories. They're going to forget the things he tweeted, the things he said. Mm -hmm. I mean, the smartest thing to do if you wanted to get rid of Trump would essentially be to allow him to tweet and Facebook because people right. would then remember and see those yeah. things. But yet here we are. That's a great point. And, you know, it's it's interesting to see how this is all has all shaked out. And we'll see whether there are any there are plenty of lessons to be learned, but we'll see if any of them resonate with with <laughs> yeah. both sides, uh, because there are things that, that can be replicated by Youngkin's campaign. And then there are obviously uh, takeaways from from McCullough's campaign and, and ways that they they maybe uh, weren't weren't all that successful. So uh, we'll move on to story number two. We're talking about uh, Winsome Sears. So obviously, all eyes yesterday, as I said at the top, were on Glenn Youngkin and Terry McAuliffe. But it was Winsome Sears who made quite a bit of history last night. She's now the lieutenant governor elect of Virginia, uh, and she burst onto the stage in the wee hours of the morning Wednesday at uh, at their campaign headquarters in Chantilly, Virginia. And she said that she's living the American dream. She's a U.S. Marine Corps veteran. Uh, she said she is at a loss for words for the first time in her life. Uh, she nevertheless, though, gave credit to God for her historic win as, as the Commonwealth's first female and first black American uh, to win the lieutenant governorship. But before we get to her faith, I want to play a clip uh, of what she had to say about the division in America. So I say to you, victory, victory indeed. But I, I say to you, There are some who want to divide us, and we must not let that happen. They would like us to believe we are back in 1963 when my father came. We can live where we want. We can eat where we want. We own the water fountains. We have had a black president elected not once but twice, and here I am living proof. you haven't noticed, I am black and I have been black all my life. (laughs) 
so obviously that was kind of a dig at, at the media and the way that they have portrayed her, the fact that they don't seem to focus on this, despite it being a historic first. Not only are they not focusing on it, but I saw a tweet last night, uh, guys, from Jameel Hill. Uh, she said, it's not the messaging, folks. The country simply loves white supremacy. And she was just one of, of several reporters who made that kind of comment. But I, look, how can you say that when you're juxtaposed against what happened last night? Virginia is elected the first black female lieutenant governor and the first Latino attorney general. This is the most diverse administration uh, that the Commonwealth has ever had. Uh, and it's more diverse, we should note, from, than McAuliffe's uh, administration would have been. Um, so clearly a, a victory there that is just is just being completely and totally uh, ignored by the media. So Sears went on to tell supporters that education, which has been a central issue of this entire campaign uh, and a bedrock of Youngkin's campaign, uh, is what lifted her out of poverty. She said education will lift us all out of poverty because we must have marketable skills so that our children can not just survive, but they will thrive uh, and recreate generational wealth. That's what this is all about. And then at the end of her speech, she talked about her uh, her her time in the military. She said she was still a Jamaican citizen when she joined the U.S. Marines. Uh, but she said that the U.S. has done so much for me. I'm willing to die for this country. Uh, and then uh, this is what she had to say about her faith and how that guided her uh, throughout the campaign. We ran an impossible, improbable campaign against God was exactly with us. Otherwise, we would never have made it. And so I want to finish up by thanking you, Jesus, how sweet it is. So obviously a, a really excited uh, crowd there. It's Sears. She served one term in the Virginia House of Delegates from 2002 to 2004, uh, but just now made a, a comeback, obviously, in politics. And she said also at the end of her speech, hold on, help is on the way. The cavalry has arrived. So clearly really excited and just an exuberant crowd last night, making quite a historic, uh, historic success there. Yeah, indeed. And uh, man, it was just, uh, I, I loved that comment there that first clip i mean just yeah because honestly there's just so much truth behind it right like we see this all the time trey you and i have talked about media hypocrisy just ad nauseum and you see it here we hear about the first um when it's not even true that the first uh you know female such and such and it's a it's a transgender right like so it's biological right. male so they will go out to extreme lengths to celebrate a first this or a first that when it's but it only seems to be something they care about when it's on the left side of the aisle. I mean, this candidate did this candidate even exist up until a couple of weeks ago, you know, in the national media's eyes? I mean, yeah, had, no, had anyone ever heard, ever heard her name before other than in maybe some conservative she, circles? Right. She had gotten some local coverage and she honestly hadn't even gotten much national coverage from even conservative outlets she was a relative unknown um but and she still unfortunately remains this this unknown that the national media doesn't want to talk about because it 
doesn't fit the narrative, right? It doesn't fit uh, the the talking points. Uh, so it's she's kind of an uncomfortable place. Uh, she's an uncomfortable candidate uh, to be to be talking about uh, or to be talked about by a lot in the media. Yeah. Well, you're seeing, yeah. I mean, you're seeing the reactions. In, Get all you need. For- the Democrats misjudge the mood. Biden's in crisis. I mean, all these headlines that really are showing that the media misjudged the mood too. That the media have had one perspective and leaving people like this out. You know, it's something we see again and again and again. And, you know, there's kind of, again, this interesting 30,000-foot look at this. I mean, how many times have you guys been in conversations with people and they will deny media bias? They will deny – they'll go down the yeah. line. Right now they're denying that CRT is real. I mean, this is the, the yeah. thing that we heard last night um, from Nicole Wallace. And yet here we are. You can keep denying, but there are consequences eventually when you do that. But in this case, I think it's just unfortunate when you have people – who cares what side they're on, breaking down boundaries and you're ignoring some and, and praising others based on ideology. That That's a sad thing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and again, I just want to highlight that comment that you mentioned, Dan, at the beginning from, from Winsome Sears, uh, when she said, we can live wherever we want, we can eat wherever we want, we own the water fountains. This is mm. not 1963. Yeah. Uh, she said, I am black and I have been black all my life in case you haven't noticed. So, you know, for, for a media that's so uh, hyper-focused on the quote unquote firsts, uh, she really deserves her time in the spotlight. Yeah. And I love that line because the, the argument as Bill, you were alluding to there is, oh, they don't think they don't want to, they just don't want to talk. It's a dog whistle. They just don't want to talk about race. And that's not true. I mean, who who doesn't think slavery in America's history shouldn't be? I don't know anyone who thinks we shouldn't talk about that history because it's real right. history. It obviously has real consequences. There are real life impacts of that. But it's this overplaying of the hand that boils every single thing down uh, to race in today's culture. And there's just so much truth into what she's saying. I mean, look at her. She talks about Barack Obama. And to say I'm living proof, it's just... It comes across to me as very powerful, and, and you yeah. know maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like the average person, not the political partisan, the average person, that will very much resonate with them. You know, especially people who are white, because they don't. You know, while no one's perfect, we're there's very few people who are intentional racists, right? And so it just seems like that message will resonate very strongly with people who have essentially been accused of being, you know, racist over the last two years. So we'll see how that unfolds going forward. But that is um, a lot of the conversation. So, uh, Billy, why don't you you, uh, lead into story three here? All right. So story story three is a little different. It's it's a little bit of a a change of pace. (laughs) Um, Story three is about a, a guy, Brian Cole, who I recently had a chance to sit down with. And this is a man who, like so many other people, lived a very confused childhood. He felt like he didn't belong. And he has this incredible story of spending more than three decades, 33 years, basically embroiled in the occult. He was a Satanist. And one of the things about his story, and you can head over to Faithwire and read it, because um, there's a lot of different elements to it. But but it reminded me of how important it is for us to be in touch with other people and to understand the plights that people are facing, because he described you know, being abused as a child, being bullied. You know, he was forced to go to church. He also had abuse in his church, which which I thought I was really sad to hear. But he goes through this this whole journey of feeling like he doesn't belong, and he finds this group of older kids who listen to him, who care about him. It turns out these kids are Satanists, and 
So from the age of 10 to until 18, because he meets these kids when he's 10, he embarks on this journey of sort of dabbling in the occult. And he describes some of the things they asked him to do. The first uh, thing they wanted him to do was to basically torture and kill a squirrel, uh, which sounds sort of bizarre. Mm. And he wouldn't do it because he always loved animals. And so they said, well, Satan demands blood. You have to cut yourself. And so that was the beginnings of a 30-plus year addiction to self-mutilization. Mutil- mm. And so he goes through this whole journey And what's so amazing to me are the connections that God makes in people's stories because he ends up in this process getting into a life of crime. And so he was in and out of jail and spent a long time, in fact, in prison. This was in Wisconsin. This is a guy who, you know, as a pagan, was basically fighting the prison system to make sure that Satanists and Wiccans and others would be able to worship freely. I mean, he was sort of an activist in prison for his cause. Uh, But he described hitting this moment in the journey with Satanism where he actually felt like the devil had way too much control over his life, and he didn't like that. So he started moving into other forms of the occult. And so this journey takes him to a place where one day he walks into his jail cell, and the case for Christ is on the floor of his cell. He doesn't Mm -hmm. know how it got there. Um, The book was sitting there, and he had started on this journey to really try and get out, get off of drugs. Even though he was in prison, he knew that every time he'd get out, he would end up back on drugs. And so that required him to go into a faith-based program. And so that, of course, that was something he really wasn't looking to get into, but he started reading the Bible and then he finds the book, The Case for Christ there. And by the time he finished that book, he said he couldn't deny that Jesus existed. He wasn't quite a believer yet, but he said, okay, now, because here's the crazy thing, this guy as a Satanist, did not believe in God. And I and I had never talked to a Satanist. So to hear him say, I worship Satan, and Satan was my God, but I didn't believe in an actual God outside of that was incredibly interesting. But he ends up coming to Christ. He ends up getting saved after reading the book and after studying the Bible more, and he's a pastor now. So here's this dude who was literally a Satanist for 30-plus years <laughs> who finds Jesus and I actually told Lee Strobel about about this story, and they're going to connect, which is really amazing, uh, because Lee Strobel is the author of The Case for Christ, and he was blown away by the fact that his book changed this guy's life. So, so that's the story. But I think, that, again, the big takeaway to me, this is a guy who felt lost as a young person, and if there were people there to help find him and guide him, and that's sort of the convicting part for us who was lost in our life, he could have really avoided potentially that three decades plus right yeah that's that is an incredible story and i can't wait to see uh, uh what uh that connection does with um lee strobel there i mean that, that'll probably be a great conversation but uh don't you love those little details too with this the book just ended up there we don't know how <laughs> yeah, yeah he's got, like no concept of how it ended up there and one thing he told me that kind of kind of i mean it was just bizarre he was so into the occult he got a tattoo of a cross on the bottom of his left foot so that he could stomp on god when the concept of god wow he would walk i mean that's how far gone this person was and to then find and this is what god does he finds us in those dark mm-hmm. alleys the darkest alley you could imagine right yeah, and that's the listening to the story and having read the story and and listened to some of the interview. Like that's just it is my takeaway is, like you said, Billy, he was so far gone, but no one is too far gone for Jesus, right? Uh, his arms are always open uh, to anybody and everybody, and it's incredible to see uh, the 
the ways that God loves us, right? Because finding that book on the jail cell floor, uh, however it got there, uh, is an example, a tangible example of God loving him uh, when when he was rejecting God. Uh, so it's just a really inspiring story and it's encouraging. And it also shows that a lot of this stuff, a lot of the, and particularly we're right on the heels of, or right after Halloween, like we're, and we've talked about this before, like the this, these kind of demonic things and the, the spiritual warfare, it's not just this abstract thing that's referenced in the Bible, right? Like it's real uh, and it has real impacts on people's lives and it's influencing culture and it's influencing people's perception of God and spirituality uh, and all of that. Uh, so it's not something something that we should mess with, but it, it's just an encouraging story. Uh, and I, you know, I don't know about y'all, but I would like to be a fly on the wall. Maybe we can tape, tape the conversation between Lee Strobel and this guy, because it would, <laughs> I mean, it would be an interesting and just fascinating conversation uh, to hear of how Lee Strobel was able through his book uh, to be, to be a, a, a tool, uh, a vehicle for God to reach him. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And, and I would love to, I would actually love to record that. Maybe, maybe we will be able to arrange that or get them on to talk together. And because yeah. as an author, there's nothing better than, than if your goal is to glorify Christ, to see somebody come to Christ yep. in that way because of your work. Yes. Amazing, amazing stuff. Love it. And that would be a great segment. Hopefully uh, it happens sometime in the future here. So, all right, let's, uh, hey, we got a few minutes to wrap here, guys. Let's just go over. I wanted to go over a couple uh, quick things here. And uh, you kind of touched on it, the Jamil Hill uh, comment, Trey. I, I wanted mm -hmm. to talk a little bit about um, this interesting kind of fork in the road battle that may be ahead, particularly for the Democratic Party, because um, of this. We've seen this fight over progressives and moderate Democrats, right? the AOCs of the world pushing for you know Bernie Sanders, open socialists pushing for huge spending, you know, bills and then they're kind of infighting with other Democrats. And so you have that dynamic going on. And then you have this election that happened last night, which seemed to be a, you know, sort of a refutation of, you know, all of all of those policies, at least on the outset, that's what it looks like. But then you have, so I'm seeing these voices and I want, this is what I wanted to get your reaction to, uh, you know, like Joy Reid from MSNBC is one. And she was retweeting things like this. Um, this comment last night, it said, it was nice to think the answer was as simple as talking more about popular things. That doesn't work because Republicans will force race into the conversation. They've been doing it since Nixon. Uh, and that I find kind of a, an amazing thing. And then Jamil Hill, as you alluded to, Trey, she said, it's not the messaging, folks. This country simply loves white supremacy. So I, I feel like, you know, it seems obvious to a lot of people because education did end up being a big issue uh, yeah. in, in Virginia. And um, it seems that people rejected that this idea of, you know, critical race theory and the whole country's white supremacists. It's institutionally racist. There's no redemption whatsoever. And to to see someone doubling down and saying, you know what, not electing Terry McAuliffe, a uh, a institutional Democrat, older white male, somehow is going and you know against you know going against diversity and inclusion, and is somehow supporting white supremacy. That seems utterly nonsensical. Like I don't know how that you make any heads or tails of that. So right. we're at this fork in the road now. Democrats are looking at this massive loss last night, and they're probably saying, well. A lot of it's probably because of this kind of messaging, but then you have the other half who still want to do that messaging. So what do you guys, what do you guys think when you see all this fallout? 
you know, I think it's interesting because, you know, the people forcing race into everything, they're, they're then accusing the other side of, <laughs> yeah. of re, because they're responding to it. And this is why a lot of Americans don't actually give their perspective on these things. And a lot of people are afraid to talk about that. Yeah. And when you're afraid to talk about something, A, it breeds instability and, and cultural chaos, but B, it creates elections like this. So if you want to continue to create environments in which people do not feel safe, maybe making a mistake, maybe saying something the wrong way and being corrected, everybody is afraid right now to even do that. So nobody opens their mouth yeah. at all. And it breeds this internal resentment and this internal instability that manifests itself at Democrats losing at the polls. And, th and this is something that we've seen again and again. And I would add that, by the way, they're all talking about race, but everyone seems to be ignoring the transgender issue. I mean, it comes up in conservative circles. This is not just a CRT issue, which I'll admit is a really complicated, CRT is complex. You, you mention it and everybody has a different definition. This is about plenty of other ideas that have permeated the education system for decades, including the gender stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think the the political prognosticators, whenever we have an election, uh, they're always quick to say, well, here are all of the lessons that each party can learn. And then inevitably, does anybody learn a lesson? No, <laughs> nobody learns anything. Uh, they just go about doing the same thing that they've always done. Um, but I think there's a potential that both sides are are reading this a little bit incorrectly, uh, because the media, as far as the Democrats are saying, that this victory can be explained away as it's all about white supremacy. Uh, obviously, that's not true. We've talked about that quite a bit today. The most diverse uh, ticket ever elected in Virginia. Uh, so that, that uh, that's just not the case. Uh, and then on the conservative side, well, Yunkin, they'll say Yunkin was victorious because of the MAGA crowd, uh, the Trump crowd. And I think, you know, there's certainly probably some truth to that. But also suburban voters returned uh, to the GOP after largely kind of pushing off the idea of Trump. Like they were not really like rah, rah for Trump. Uh, these were suburban voters who stayed home in 2020, uh, have roared back and they voted. And there's also going to be in the media, I think this effort to downplay what happened here in Virginia, because they'll say, well, the margin was really close. Like Yunkin won, but it was, a, it was a really tight race. And that is true. But down ballot uh, in the House of Delegates, Republicans sweeped. Um, so this was clearly a, a decisive win for Republicans, and it's just what's the what's the the lesson going to be? Uh, and I think it's that uh, like like what y'all have said, the message from up top at the White House uh, is just not resonating, and uh, it's creating a culture where these these real issues, Billy, like you mentioned, the transgenderism issue, uh, sexual assault in Loudoun County was mm. a big issue. Uh, you know, these things are getting a lot of attention, uh, and they're because they're having real life ramifications, right? They're they're not abstract topics. Uh, they're not just CRT and you know whatever. They're things that are having impacts. Uh, parents are watching it happen to their kids. Uh, and Sissy Graham Lynch, she tweeted last night, "Don't mess with mama bears." Uh, <laughs> that was her takeaway of of what's going on. And I think that's a, I think that's an, an apt observation. Yeah. I mean, you've silenced people so much by trying to cancel them for everything they've said and done. And don't get me yeah. wrong. Some people say incorrect things and they need to say they're sorry, but there are plenty of times where people are saying completely rational, sane things that have stood the test of time for, you know, two millennia until you know yesterday and they're canceled for it. <laughs> You're going to create silence within people and it's going to, yeah. you will see Virginia again and again and again, honestly, if this continues. Yep, 100%. All right, guys, that is all the time we have for this episode today. Glad that you all made time to be with us and check it out. As always, for more news from a Christian perspective, head on over to cbnnews.com. 
and faithwire.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. So God bless you. We'll be back here tomorrow with more. And uh, until then, have a great rest of your day. And um, be blessed. We'll see you then.